As interior designers, we're accustomed to celebrating the end of the project. All the final touches in place, installation is complete, and hopefully we have an ecstatic, happy client. But what about the process? The complex journey and people behind the polished and finessed final result. Welcome to Once Upon a Project, a new show from the Surround Podcast Network by Sandow. I'm your host, AJ Perrone, design futurist and executive vice president at Sandow Design Group, delivering design brands know and love like Interior Design Magazine, Metropolis Magazine, Lux, Think Lab, and more. For today's story, we're going to look at three completely different projects that are woven together by an evolution of goals from the client and the award-winning designer, Betsy Voss. Betsy and her creative team at Studio BV show us how small firms can be mighty, even in the case of creating amazing projects that showcase the impact of design. It's been six and a half years since I started the business. It is really a privilege to get to run a firm. I do, I do think every day I wake up and think I'm the luckiest person in the world and I don't take that for granted never once. I feel like if you think about this as a gift or an opportunity or a privilege, what do you want to do with it? Let's start our journey to hear the challenges of growth, the reimagining of retail, and how those projects can fuel design for good in their community and beyond. I am Betsy Voss, the CEO and founder of Studio BV in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a group of designers that work in multidisciplinary avenues. We like to solve problems in a lot of different typologies and scales. And so we really don't think we're experts. We think we are just creative problem solvers. I've been a designer for over 20 years now, so that makes me old. Betsy's passion for design and helping people are anything but old. Let's hear her talk about her journey with a client that started with their office, transformed to their home, and then finished to reimagining retail post-pandemic across their brand. I'd love to tell the story of our relationship with Ever Eve. Ever Eve is a boutique women's clothing brand. They're a founder-led company that's based in Minneapolis. They have about 130 stores around the country. They carry lots of different brands, but they also carry about 30% of their own design products. My relationship with them goes back probably 10 years, doing some store design work in about 2013, 14. And then in 2017, they asked me to design their first real office. They were living in a very charming sort of retail mixed-use small building in Edina, Minnesota, which was lovely, but did not really serve their needs. They had a lot of people packed into a very tiny space, and it wasn't really office space. It just really didn't function very well for them. But the charm of it, the culture of it, it was close to where everyone lived. It was very walkable to retail. They hung on to it for a very long time until they were literally bursting at the seams. They had like 80 people working for them and no one could come and really connect because the space didn't work really well. It wasn't set up for that. So Moving into an office space was, I think for them, transformative in lots of ways. It really put them into a platform where they could do their best work, which I think that's what office design is striving to do for every organization is to create a landscape in which they can do the best work possible and to really drive their business to a new place. For them, the leadership team, it was scary because 
you know, quirky, smaller residential type spaces were what they knew and going into an office building and a huge, you know, parking lot. And there's all sorts of shifts that they were worried that would really kill their culture and kill the sort of innovative spirit that makes their business special. Listening to that was really important. And we spent a lot of time with them and we worked on how do we translate what happens in the store environment to the office space and are trying to do things with clients that are very specific and interesting. And so we wanted them to start to think about office design the same way. And that really unlocked that potential for them of what office really could be. It's been amazing. Coming into that space was, has been very successful for them. They've grown, they've used it. It's just been a tool that they couldn't even imagine what it would be like before they got there, which is as a designer, the best you could ever ask for, right? Is that whatever tools you gave a client through the design process has really changed them for the better and made them grow. So that was very rewarding and very joyful. Betsy's success on completing a large complex project earned her client's trust. And for her next challenge, that trust brought her into a much more intimate project and then a redefinition of a brand. That relationship then really grew. Their organization was growing. So they asked me to work on their home, which was a really fun project. The co-CEOs are a married couple, husband and wife. They're wonderful people who have a very clear vision of who they are and they love design. And so any designer wants to work with clients that love design because Design's joyous and wonderful. And my firm got to do that wonderful project with their house. And then they came and started to think about store design in a new way. You know, this was 2019. So this is pre-pandemic. They'd asked us to think about what could the stores really become in the future? How could that really change? It's a, a unique project because Megan, the founder, and she's really the leader, I think spiritually too, of the business. She started this business 15 years ago and as a business leader, as a woman, she's evolved and she's, you know, has kids in college. She's no longer a young mother. She's just kind of transformed. And I think she's really the ambassador for the, the voice of the customer. I think she wanted to tackle where are we going to go next? Because our design is sort of 10 years ago in terms of where she was and in terms of maybe where the customer was and how can we use design as a an opportunity to open the door and maybe widen the brand and really acknowledge an audience that's maybe not being acknowledged in the current design. We spent a lot of time with Megan and thinking about what her vision could be. That was a lovely deep dive experience that lasted about three months. We presented end of March, two years ago, 2020. And then of course, 2020 happened. It was catastrophic. They couldn't even have stores open. And in retail, <laughs> Stores not open is, we're dead, right? There's no money because no one's buying. Megan and Mike as, as the founders and, and leaders, they're such good leaders. And I do think working with clients that you get to know and you get to see how they lead and how they really guide things that handle adversity is really such a gift to me. And I never waste those opportunities. So they really started to think about how are we gonna be different? What are we gonna do? As a business, ramped up online, but also ramped up sort of that curated experience to their customers in a non-physical way. They also started to think about how they communicated to clients. What does it mean? They started using that office space as a studio. They started doing a ton of Instagram stories, Facebook Live stuff, and it was interactive because the Ever Eve brand is such an experience-based brand that without that personal connection, it doesn't really have the same 
affiliation for their, their clients and their customers. So they really rethought all of that. And it became this way to connect with them as people. They were more vulnerable, they were out there. And it, it just really changed, I think, how loyal their customer is, but also how they worked with them and talked to them. And they did well in the pandemic. Retail got hit hard, they didn't. And they kind of pivoted their business to be so much more reactive and, and digitized and connecting to people in ways that they didn't do before. And then they said, let's talk about stores, Betsy. This was end of 2020. I was like, okay, we were in pre-vaccine still. They're like, let's start talking about stores again. And I was like, okay, all right, let's start talking about stores because lots has changed in the almost year since we picked this up, right? A lot has changed. And I think as designers, we design for people, right? And we have to hear and listen and try to understand the people. They changed and they were so open to take risks and to really rethink this box that is retail space and what they're doing and where they're going and what parts of the country they're in. And they're like, we're going to California. We're going to very high-end stores, which I'll be honest, they were in lots of states around the country, but they weren't next to Tiffany's. And they said, we're going for it. And we need to really, really rethink what this is about. Hey, listeners, it's Bobby and Andrew from Barriers to Entry. You do not want to miss our episode with Lisa Grelnick from IF Design. If you're a fan of Barriers to Entry, this episode should be at the top of your queue. Bobby, why do we love this episode so much? Well, Lisa was my favorite presenter at South by Southwest 2024, and she mm -hmm. took us behind the scenes of her part at South by, and it's going to go even deeper in our conversation with her. Yeah, amazing conversation about innovation, about sustainability, and about a European award that's about to take the U.S. by storm. Make sure to subscribe or follow Barriers to Entry wherever you get podcasts to hear our episode with Lisa Grelneck and to be notified when new episodes drop. Which for me was like, dream come true, because now gloves are off. There's no, let's just nibble at the edges. No, it was a total... What would it be if it could be something new? And that was gold. We've heard this all throughout the pandemic. This pause, this massive global shift, it allowed the opportunity for clients and designers to reimagine the new. What if you didn't just put Band-Aids all over it? What if you could work on a totally new concept that could catapult you into the future where you could thrive and not just get by? We went back to sort of zero and said, what could it be? If it never was before, what could it be? And it looks radically different. It is, I would say, more sophisticated. It's more art focused. Megan loves art and I love art. That is a true addiction that I have. And it was, how do we get an authentic art story in each store that's unique? How do we think about what accessories are? How do we think about the furnishings, the rugs? These are not things that people in retail who are trying to sell jeans and sweaters are ever talking, they don't care. Like most CEOs are like, we need to sell more stuff. Let's pack it in, right? Like it's not about what art could we get here and what can we do with custom lighting? And wouldn't that be great if we employed these makers and this person? I mean, that was conversations we were never gonna have pre-pandemic. That, that that wasn't in their in their mind and it wasn't even kind of a value proposition for them. And now, it was like everything's on the table in a way that is so rich and so exciting. There was a lot of pink, very highly feminized coloration in their previous store. There's none of that now. 
it's it's navy blue and wood and black and white. It's high contrast. It's heavy material. We used a lot of soft geometry. There was no geometry. And the just thinking about building in things and customizing how we're shaping space, it, it just costs more, but it has a bigger impact. And we were allowed to do that. Everything about it, custom textiles for the drapery, for the fitting rooms and what that would feel like, you know, instead of shutting a door, do you, you know, take a really beautiful drapery and move that? And is that softer? Do you feel a little bit cozier in that dressing room because of that experience? I remember talking about the dressing rooms with Mike and Megan, the two, the co-CEOs, and we were talking about the accessories on there. And Mike goes, they need to put their coffee down. They Where's the coffee? Because Everybody knows you're shopping now with a drink and a bag. But the thing about the coffee is you can put your bag on the floor, but no one wants to ever put their drink on the floor. Just the little things, because behavior is behavior. You're never going to take the Starbucks out of that experience. So let's make it more successful. Let's just kind of take those moments and, and make room for them and make space for them. I mean, we went down to every little detail and it was all important and valued in a way that I don't think it was possible before the pandemic. It's fresh. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but it's elevated and it's beautiful. And I think that that idea of inclusion and accessibility and beauty and openness is balanced with this refinement and this, I would say, more elegant and more sophisticated palette of materials and experiences. For most people, when you think about fashion and retail, you think about beautifully designed, trend-setting stores that only the rich and famous are truly accepted or could afford. There is a negative psychological trickle-down effect to standard retail experiences. When I walk into a store, do I feel like I should be there? Am I being judged in how I look, how rich I am, how skinny I am? Do I represent the brand? When Betsy is talking about inclusion and accessibility, this is the problem they were trying to solve for. And that's what we did. I think fashion should be fun. It should be about being your best. And I think that that's what, as designers of environments, we have to lay the landscape for that. We have to want to welcome people in, like, come on in. It has to feel warm and interesting and inviting. And it should feel like you can be there. Your daughter should want to be there and feel like, hey, this is for me too. And I like being here. You know when you have a great shopping day and you know when you have a bad shopping day. And I think that design sometimes can play a role in that. We want things to be simple enough where people feel like they can navigate it. I do think anyone that comes into a store, whether you're, you know, have mobility issues, if you have sight issues, we want things to be accessible and clear. And one of the big things that we did was to sort of anchor moments visually in the store where you could sort of see things. We made the dressing room area. We did this like sort of soft arc geometry, but we made it navy in every single application. We wanted it to be an anchor backdrop. We also created a lot of space around that area. So if you're shopping with a friend, if you're shopping with someone who has mobility problems, they don't feel like they can't get to it. It's unlike another brand where it's you and the clothes, it's you, the clothes, and then your stylist. So we physically need more space for that to happen. They also want to have a different experience with their customer in the store. So that gives us opportunity. They wanted to do when we started designing these, what if we did Facebook lives there? What if we did author events? Megan is a voracious reader. She reads so much and she loves writers and she loves to talk about it. So why can't this be a place of gathering? When you think about those activities, you think about a Facebook Live, like an ambassador event, a photo shoot, a book launch, 
now we need a lot more space and we need things to be a little bit different. So that retail space is asking more of the, the architecture than it ever would if it was just a retail space. I think there was also a, a big shift. I think pre-pandemic, every inch of real estate had a, a dollar value associated with it in a way that is different now because accessibility, having events, connecting with people in that space, in the brand, not virtually, it's physically in that space, has an intangible value and it has a space requirement that's gonna cost money, but it has such a transformative value to their brand that you can't quantify. And I think pre-pandemic, I don't know if any retail owner would have got there, but with strong leadership from Megan and Mike, they understand that value and now they're willing to pay for it. The stores are way bigger, way bigger. And it's because of all that. And that is awesome because that then makes them have a different connection to their customer and into the community that they couldn't have had before. And that is architecture, that is design, that is that is us creating a landscape for them to do the best work they can. That was absolutely wonderful as a designer, but it was also wonderful for their team because this was like a new chapter. You wanna be there. It's about being together. It's about having connections with people that aren't digitized and that are more meaningful. And that's just so valued. Never in your life do you get the chance to take the same subject matter and then show the impact of design because that's the only thing that changed. We went into stores in the same location and redid it. And then the sales are through the roof and the activities through the roof. You never get that chance, I don't think, to really prove is design the thing that's changing? Because they didn't all of a sudden sell different things or do something different. It was literally the scene changed. And that scene in the urban sense from the exterior design that we're doing to the interior design has transformed and been such an amazing moment for them as a business, but also for me to see the impact of design. It's just so clear. And I don't know if I'll ever get that again, that such clarity around impact of design, but it has really changed everything. For many design companies, there is a goal on growth, how to expand, gain bigger and better projects that will put them on the map. But for Betsy's team, their ambitions are a bit different than that. I have always loved design, and I don't think I've ever loved it more than I do now, because I see how important it is for people to be in a place that has meaning for them, just in general. Whether it's this revolution of home renovation, because people finally realize, oh, my house doesn't work for me, is, is a good thing. Whether it's your office, the hotel, the Airbnb, whatever whatever it is, I do think People just, I think they're more alive and they're more intentional and they're thinking about it. And I think I am too. I would say I've prioritized things differently. I really feel like, I hope I have a clear vision for my business. I think I have a stronger one now than before the pandemic. I want to work with clients who want design to be the story and, and nothing else anymore. I think we know who we are. We're not a big firm. We never will be. I think we, we're a firm who loves design work and, and we love the projects that we work on and the diversity we have. And we really want to be with clients who want to make design the forefront of their project and see something transformed. I feel like if you think about this as a gift or an opportunity or a privilege, what do you want to do with it? If you could do anything 
what would you do? And I try to ask myself that question because I feel like I have a little bit of agency to do that, right? Because we have really smart people who have great brains and who want to give back. So I think being in the community is really important. Most designers want to feel that they are making a difference in the world, that their design has impact on people, communities, and the planet that is positive. But let's face it, interior design has been historically known to be a service exclusive for the wealthy. It's only been the past 75 years where there's been a movement for good design for all. No matter the social economic status, many feel good design is a basic human right. However, it hasn't been that easy to give access to more diverse populations, and we have a long ways to go. I wanted to give back in new ways. I'm on boards, but lots of people are on boards. You know, you donate money, lots of people do that. How can we use this design practice? Because that's really the talent that we have. That's what we have to offer the world. How do we do this in new ways for people that don't think that design is a possibility for them? They either don't think that they should spend money on it because they're a not-for-profit. They don't think they're worthy of it. And I have sat in meetings where people say that and it's heartbreaking or they don't have access. So how do we become accessible, affordable, and present to them? I have a practice called Design Forward where we're doing pro bono work. And that is great because, you know, the arc of a design and architecture project comes in lots of different forms, but you have to show up at the right time in the timeline to really make that effective. And so through the community and people that we know, we have been connected to wonderful projects and gotten to work on just the most amazing projects for us. I mean, it's the work I'm most proud of. It's the the funnest projects. During the pandemic, we opened the model to entrepreneurs who were affected by social unrest. So you didn't have to be a not-for-profit. We did two retail spaces for restaurants for people that got their businesses just hammered. It's retail, it's a lot of office. But we are even doing our first RV. We're working with Dress for Success and we're renovating an RV. Think about an organization that was place-based. You went there. You went there to try and close. It was sort of a, a physical spot in the Twin Cities where you went to do that. In the pandemic, that wasn't possible. So they really shed their real estate and now have this idea that really hasn't been tried. It was tried in like the 90s in a different location, but really to do like a beautiful high design. RV that could go all over the state and meet women where they're at. And not only for clothing, but for coaching and resume work and just be like a beacon of hope and empowerment for women. That is amazing. So I'm all in on that. We're actually presenting the design today. They called me because I knew someone on their board and I said, absolutely. I mean, are you kidding me? When am I ever going to see that opportunity again? Uh, so fun stuff like that. And my team, we're all so excited. Who wouldn't want to work on that? That is just a once in a lifetime opportunity. And again, just to, for an organization that's in the pandemic, rethought how they meet people, how they do service, what they're doing with people and how this RV becomes this sort of physical thing that can be present in communities that they could never be before because they were in one physical location. But I do think there's this, I don't know why, but I, there's a culture in not-for-profits that really is every dollar has to go to the grantee or to the cause, right? If we spend any money on our art space or for us, that's sort of misguided. They think that if you're in not-for-profit service work, you're not worthy of good space. I'm, I know that that's not true. It's completely not true. I would say it's been transformational in so many different ways. I can talk about Tubman. 
Tubman is the largest domestic violence organization in Minnesota. So it does legal work. It does uh, a lot of therapy. It has housing. It does a ton of stuff, social work. So they're basically a, a one-stop resource for domestic violence. They came to us with an opportunity. They were selling a building and they thought maybe we could use some of this money to renovate. They had a building that was really a space where all their therapy and legal work happens in Minneapolis. It was built in the 80s and hadn't been touched since. It just wasn't really functional. It was very drab. It, I, I, I don't know. It's just not a lot of positive things. It was a 30-year-old building. And they had some money. And I thought, this is the opportunity. So we started this pre-pandemic and finished during the pandemic. But it has been amazing for them. You walked into that space. And the people that work there are therapists working on the hardest things. And they had no access to daylight. Their furniture was, I mean, falling apart. They had rooms that were like, you know, six foot by eight. The conditions were unacceptable is the best thing I can tell you. They couldn't believe that we would want to change that because that was where they worked and that was what's important. And it's not important to, to sort of make that better. You would think that people working in a nonprofit would be thrilled and thankful that they're getting a nice place to work. But as you hear from Betsy, the philosophies of where to spend the organization's money has a lot of psychological baggage designers need to deal with. Change is hard enough for employees, but not feeling you are worthy of that needed change, it's a whole nother challenge. And I'm like, but how could it not be? How could it, how could you give the best work to those women and people who are seeking your help if you're in an environment that doesn't empower you? It makes no sense. And so we had to really flip the thinking. We often have to start with that. You deserve it. So that's just the level set. You need this. If you're in a space that empowers you, makes you happy, lifts you up, is healthier, has daylight, has better materials, you're better at your job. And the people that come here feel more empowered, feel that they're worthy, feel like they can do it. It's a two-way thing. So this notion of it's all about the programs is important, but it really isn't because that physical experience changes it. If you are coming in for therapy, that is a hard thing to do at any point in your life, let alone if you're getting out of a domestic violence situation, to be in a space that you want to go to, that makes you feel good, that makes you feel like there's hope and there's a way forward. That's what we're trying to do. And they deserve it, the clients, and so do you. So we really need to educate sometimes our clients, our pro bono clients, that's what we want to do. We want to make this for you. And in turn, you will do the work that you do even better. And every time we do it, it changes. They just can't believe it. And it's, it's just this radical shift of who they are and of who they can recruit in a land of you know limited talent, I think in the whole country, especially in the upper Midwest, how do you get great talent to be in your organization? You know, how do you do this work that's very hard? If you had a work environment that was healthy and joyous and telling stories, that's gonna go a long way to help recruit and maintain the talent that you have, which is how you deliver services. So we do a lot of work around that because if we talk differently about it, People can start to make better decisions. They can tell us more about how we can fix it. I do think if they don't believe they're worthy of it, they're never going to really be honest with what we can do to, as a designer to fix what, what's not working, right? And so that has been so fun and inspirational for me too. I mean, I'm here selfishly because I want to learn too. I mean, I'm on a journey as, as well. So whatever we can do to bring someone to a new place, we want to be part of that. And then hopefully we're evolving as well. 
I've said, I don't know how I've figured out this way to sort of be a boutique higher-end design firm, yet do it for free for some people. That's a juggling act that's, that's somewhat masterful because I think a lot of our clients know that they're part of that story and it's important to them. And I will say, we've been fortunate enough to get our pro bono work published and visible. And I do think good design doesn't have a price tag. You can be a good designer with paint and nothing, and you can be a good designer for an un unlimited budget. Design is about ideas, it's not about materials. But there is this agreement and, and I think an understanding that our process is the same, our outcomes are somewhat similar, but it's important that we're giving back in this way. And it's really meaningful. It's about 15% of my practice is that. We're 15 people too. Staying this small is nice for me because we all have access to it. It's an important cultural piece of my farm. I think everyone is proud of that work and, and it is really great. But I, I do think if my small firm can do it, what could a big firm do? Imagine that. It's really about thinking about, you know, if, if you can do whatever you want, what would you be doing? And I asked myself that question pretty early on in this business and I, that was my answer. It was like giving it to people who need it most. I mean, that's kind of why I started my firm. I was like, if I don't start a firm like this, who's going to? No one. So you just got to do it. There are a few things we can learn from Betsy and how she engages her firm in their design work. First, bigger isn't always better. Many young designers starting in their career look at the large firms and dream of the day they could say they work for that prestigious firm. They look at it as the mark of their success. But past that, having purposeful work can fuel you and fulfill you in a way you might never could imagine. Whether that's a large firm or a small firm, it's about your contribution to the work and the impact of that design. And truly, for a designer, that's why you get up in the morning. To hear more stories about the design process behind some of the most amazing projects with some really cool designers, make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Once Upon a Project is a part of Surround, a podcast network by Sandow. To check out our other design-related shows in our network, head over to surroundpodcast.com. And if you enjoyed our story, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review and give us a five-star rating if you loved it, wherever you get your podcasts.